0: morning we are going to wrap up the study of the Lord's prayer that we have been engaged in all fall by turning our attention to the last phrase to the doxology for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen now i want to be among the first to admit that this is not exactly an advent text Uh, I agree with Augustine who said that the Lord's Prayer is a remarkable gift from God to us. And I have reflected on uh, what it would be like if I thought that under the tree in our home was uh, a letter that had been written by Christ to me, coaching me on how I might more appropriately draw into the presence of of, of the Holy Father, guiding me to know how I should think uh, about prayer, about life, uh, how I could have a, a deeper, more intimate relationship with God and, and a more, uh, a more uh, spiritually alive and successful life. I, I've, I've reflected on that and have decided that that would be a lot more exciting than another sweater. So th- there is a sense in which um, this is a gift. And I could perhaps try and spin this as an Advent message. But the fact of the matter is we are looking at this, uh, the tail end of the Lord's Prayer now during Advent because I didn't get this series finished when I was supposed to before Advent began. And there are two reasons that that didn't happen. One is because I expanded uh, the, 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 the phrase on forgiveness. We spent a couple weeks there. And secondly, and more specifically, I was not planning on preaching on this last part of the Lord's Prayer. Now that might strike you as a little bit odd, given that the series title is The 57 Words That Changed the World, why I would just sort of throw away 12 of those 57 words. But the reason I wasn't going to comment on these 12 words is because they're not actually in the text. If you are looking in Matthew chapter 6, where we have been studying, or in Luke chapter 11, the other place that the Lord's Prayer occurs, then you are aware that it's not in the text. And I've had some people ask me many times, why do we add this to the Lord's Prayer? Who decided that, that uh, they, they were going to say, in essence, to Jesus, hey, great first draft, I can improve it. I want to add a little bit here, and it'll be stronger, and uh, we'll go with uh, with my copy. Who who decided that? Well, uh, the answer is a little bit complicated, and uh, it, it, it has to do with the fact that we have such an abundance of ancient Greek manuscripts, some people have thought and said, "You know, isn't there just like a a, a manuscript that we look at and we know whether it's in or it's not?" And, and the fact of the matter is, not exactly. Uh, the New International Version of the Bible has translated the Lord's Prayer without this final phrase. The King James Version of the Bible has translated this prayer with. The final phrase in it. As a matter of fact, uh, the message, the paraphrase by Eugene Peterson has it. Uh, the the New King James has it, but footnotes it. Uh, the New American Standard version of the Bible has it in brackets. Uh, the ESV version of the Bible has it in the footnotes. There's a lot of discrepancy about this, and it leads some people to say, "How?" 2,000 years later, can we be so confused about this? Why can't we just agree on whether it's in or not? And again, the answer is a little bit complicated. And I want to I try and explain this to you for a couple reasons. But I want to say at the beginning, and it's something I'm going to come back to, I want you to have great confidence that the Word of God that you have in your hand is trustworthy. As a matter of fact, You can bet your life on it. I'm certainly betting my life on it. That said, what you need to understand is what has gone on for a couple thousand years in the scholar's study. And and it it has to do with the fact that we don't have one master copy of the Greek New Testament. We have 5,000 copies. And... While they agree almost across the board, 99.9%, there is a .01% where they don't agree. Now, let me just put this in context because I think this this might help you a little bit. I I am starting to hear a little bit more in recent years, uh, a, a new objection. It's actually an older objection, but a new objection sort of circle back in with those who choose not to follow Christ. Uh, and it's what we'll call the legend argument. Those that say, you know what, we don't really have uh, good reason to believe that Jesus existed, or maybe such a person existed, but we don't have any idea what he said. We, it, we, the, the, the New Testament was written by his followers hundreds of years later. It's filled with myth and conjecture and all kinds of things. We can't trust the Bible. Now, I'm hearing this more than what I used to hear, which was the idea that, you know, Jesus is a great. Person, a wonderful moral leader, perhaps even a prophet, just not God. Right? He's just, he was great. I'll give you he was incredible. He was he was one of the best humans to ever live. He just, but he just wasn't God. And, and that argument, I think, we're increasingly, at least followers of Christ, and those who are not followers of Christ but engaged in the conversation are starting to realize again, that's not really an option. C.S. Lewis sort of reframed the, the ancient discussion in the 20th century by saying that Jesus is either Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic. Right? This was the oldest argument. If you go back into the early writings that followed uh, followed the apostles, you see that that a lot of people would state that Jesus, in, in Latin it says Jesus is out deuce, out homo malus. He's out deuce. he's either God or... He's a bad man. Those are your options. He's either God or he's a bad man. And he's either God or a bad man. He's either Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic. Because when you claim to be God and you accept worship and you tell people that you can secure their eternal destiny, and you tell people that they need to be completely dedicated to you, because you are in fact the creator and the future judge, when you make all those claims, if those claims aren't true, you're not a good person, right? You're a a bad person. Either you're lying because you know those things aren't true, Or you are insane because you think those things are true, but they're not. But you you don't have the option to say that he's a a good moral leader who's teaching us all how we should live and we should all be like him. That doesn't work. Well that objection is now sort of being countered by some who come along and say, well, you see, the problem is Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, in the New Testament, it makes it clear that he makes that claim. I'll grant you that, but you can't trust the New Testament. It's not a reliable document. Well, if you head down that path, you need to understand that we basically do not know much of anything at all that happened more than 500 years ago. I mean, just write off history before that, because if you're not going to trust the New Testament, there's nothing that you can trust. It's just by way of reference, we have 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Some are complete, some are just fragments, but there's 5,000 of them, and they date as, as, as old, they go back to within 30 years of when the initial documents were written. Okay, we don't have any of the original documents, but we have copies of those documents that come within 30 years, perhaps 25 years, of the time they were actually written. By way of reference, when you look at other documents from the ancient world, like the Greek philosophers and the things that they wrote, the most recent copy that we have is 950 years after something was written. In some cases, the the, the, the documents that, that scholars will trust were written 1,350, the copies are 1,350 years later than what was originally written. And we have maybe eight of them or 10 of them. We have 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament and they date within 25 to 30 years of the original. And that doesn't even count the, 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 co- the tr- copies that we have, the ancient copies that we have in other languages 10,000 Latin copies, 9,000 other copies, and all the letters that were written that quote the Bible from which we could create almost the entire New Testament, virtually the entire New Testament, just from other letters that themselves are within the first and second century. There's just nothing else like this. And so when we take those 5,000 Greek manuscripts and everything else and we lay them out, and we start to study this, we can say that we have got the exact words 99.9% of the time. And no major doctrine is is in doubt. But we do have this .01% where we're confused. And the last phrase in the Lord's Prayer is in that percent. To state it simply, most copies, Greek manuscripts, have it, but the oldest copies do not. And that leads some translation teams to include it and others to leave it out. Now almost certainly you think that it should be left in because the, the version of the Lord's Prayer that you have memorized, Comes from the King James version of sixteen eleven, and if you had ever thought about it, you would have realized that that's the translation that you memorized because we say things like "Our Father who art in heaven." Right? Have you said uh, "I art at home now" recently, or is that thine uh, bagel? Right? I mean, we just we don't use those terms. And so what we have memorized is is a prayer... That was translated 400 years ago. And it was based on uh, a Greek text put together by a scholar named Erasmus. It's called the Texas Receptus. And at the time that Erasmus pulled together the master copy of the Greek New Testament 400 years ago. He just didn't have access to many of the thousands of additional manuscripts that we now have. So he thought it should be in there. and, And there's good arguments to say that it should be in there. Among them are the New Testament scholars that say prayers of that time had an ending, much like the ending that we see here. Biblical prayers of the Jews in the Old Testament had an ending similar to this. Go to 1 Chronicles 29-11. You'll see a very similar ending to the one we have on the Lord's Prayer. And additionally, the, some of the earliest letters that we have, not the New Testament, but some of the earliest writings that we have in the church, have people reciting the Lord's Prayer and including this ending. Some would date some of these letters at 50 A.D., within 20 years of the death of Christ. So I've decided, after spending some time thinking about this and realizing that we do pray this, right? I mean, it's it's been part of what we've been praying, and it's undoubtedly part of what we will continue to pray, and you will continue to pray. And so with the same line of thinking that you would never sign a contract— that, uh, that you haven't read and understood. It doesn't make sense to pray a prayer that you don't understand. I want us to, to give some attention to this sort of majestic crescendo that the Lord's Prayer is drawn to a close with. It's a big three-note chord. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, If we take these one at a time, I guess the first thing I would say is that the idea of kingdom actually is sort of an Advent message, because what we celebrate at Advent, Advent is a period of waiting, it was initially waiting for the king to arrive the first time, which he did at the incarnation, right? He took on flesh. Well, while existing from eternity past, at that moment in time, he entered, he entered human life by becoming a man while remaining God. The king arrived. He didn't look like a king, but he was a king. And we are, of course, to be looking forward to the return of the king. That's part of what the Advent celebration is to be about. So it's a little bit of, of a Christmas message. But, but remember what it means to talk about a kingdom. The the kingdom is that geographical domain where the king's wishes are honored and obeyed. It's the area, it's the the space where everybody pays attention to the will of the sovereign one. And, And so what we are affirming when we say... Thine is the kingdom, right? is that it is ultimately your will that matters. You're the one that counts. It's about you. It's not about us. It's what you want. It's your will, your kingdom that needs to be what, what I am focusing on. Everything, everywhere is subservient to you. And I personally am saying, right, this is what, what you're saying as we pray this, is that my primary allegiance, the, the most defining thing about me, the, the foundation of my life, is, is you. You define me. It's your will that ultimately matters. And I give my allegiance to you in, in a greater way than I give allegiance to my, my government and country, in a greater way than I, than I pledge my allegiance uh, to my own career. Uh, in a greater way than, than I pledge my allegiance even to my family and my friends. And clearly, those are most, among the most shocking words that, that Christ ever says. Where he says that he needs to be first in our life. And it's not that we're to love our family and friends less. It's that we are to love him more. He is the king. And then we say, yours is, thine is the kingdom and the power. And here we're declaring, probably in a wonderful sort of pastoral way, we're reminding ourselves of who it is that we have just come before. He's the omnipotent one. right? He's the one that has the ability, which is ultimately what power is. It's the ability to do things. He's the one that has the ability to do whatever he chooses to do he has the ability to defeat all his enemies he has the ability to advance his kingdom he has the ability to bless whoever he wants to bless i mean this is a this is a wonderfully pastoral affirming statement you don't have any needs that he is unable to meet you've never been in a situation that is darker than he has the ability to shine light in and change it he is the one that has the power and, and this is a power beyond what we can comprehend. Paul makes that point in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, when he, when he says in almost sort of a benedictory way in the middle, he, he says, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Right? So God has the ability to do far more abundantly than we can think, than we can imagine. Right? He's he is the all-powerful one. We're, we're, we're only, uh, me personally, I only occasionally feel like I'm in the presence of, of power that is sort of shocking and really at times frightening. And often it's, it's outside. It has something to do with the wind or the waves. And it's just sort of this recognition about how powerful some of these things can be. Well, I mean, you know, let's just put it in context again, right? We're, we're, a, we're a small little planet, right? The, 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 the third rock from the sun in a, in a little solar system in a small galaxy, you know, one galaxy among billions. I mean, the wind and the waves is nothing. It's chump change compared to the power of the creator. So we are, we are stating this, For thine is the kingdom and the power and then and the glory forever. In stating that God has the glory, we are acknowledging that the triune God of grace, the God and God alone, is the one who is infinitely holy and perfect and majestic. And consequently, he is the one who deserves all worship, praise, and honor. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, Yahweh dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. He is greater. He is brighter. He is more wonderful, more majestic, more awe-inspiring, more glorious than anyone else ever has been or will be. He has no equal. Given that, the glory needs to go to him. So let's step back for just a second and, and recognize what happens when, when we close the prayer this way. What it means is that the prayer that Christ has taught us begins with a focus on God, right? our Father who art in heaven, how it would be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and then it ends with a focus on God. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory forever. Now, our needs are there. right? Our, our petitions are there. And in a, in a way that only God could do, I mean, in three little petitions virtually every need we could possibly have is covered, right? Give us this day our daily bread is meet all our needs that we have, all our physical needs. When we say forgive us our debts, we're, we're praying for a, for a, for a relational uh, wholeness. And, and then we say, and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. We're asking for spiritual protection and physical protection. Virtually everything is there. All our needs are met. It's not wrong to pray about your needs. But recognize The majority of the focus of this prayer is not looking this way, it's looking out. I would confess that for a lot of years, my personal prayers were about 90% about me and the things that were on my heart, the things that I was worried about. And what we've got here is an opportunity to, to have our concerns framed in the context of focusing on God first and last, which is this wonderfully freeing thing to do. I mean, it, it, it's perspective, it's context, and, and it, it's an opportunity to, to, to simply not be so self-consumed. And, and there's great freedom in that. Of realizing, you know, it's really, it's not about me. And I'm okay with that. We need to realize that uh, there is great comfort and and joy that comes from taking our eyes off ourselves and focusing our lives, our prayers, our thoughts around the glory and majesty of God. We need to be reminded that it's not all about us. You may think that a prayer that spends the majority of its time focused on God would not be what you need. I would submit it is exactly what we all need. Because you were not made for yourself. You were made for him. God was not made for you. He right? wasn't made. He is eternal. But, but, but the focus of God is not primarily about you or about me it's about him because he's God right it's this can be a little unnerving at first there is great freedom when we actually get this down I think one of the reasons for the epidemic levels of low self-esteem that we have in this country is not because people think too little of themselves but because they think too much of themselves they think too often of themselves and and we're simply, you are not big enough to be the chief concern in your life. That's a small life. You are not important enough, you're not big enough, you're not majestic enough, you're not grand enough, you're not glorious enough to be the main focus of your life. You are greater than that by being focused on him and not on yourself. God does not exist for your benefit. We exist for his glory. This prayer starts and stops with him. And I am persuaded that five seconds after we die, whatever whatever has come into focus, right? We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that, that uh, we see through a, you know, glass dimly now, it's foggy, but when the fog parts, right, when the haze lifts, when we actually have a chance to see the splendor of heaven, if we're standing outside the gates looking to get in, whatever it is that we see, I am persuaded that one of my first thoughts, and I suspect it will be one of your first thoughts as well, is, oh my goodness, if I had seen this, I would have done more. I would have given more, I would have served more, I would have sacrificed more, I would have been more courageous, I would have been, I would have been in even more than I'm in. When, when we see who he is, I think we'll regret the self-absorption that we have. This prayer leads us in a different direction. So <clears throat> I'm going to close with a challenge. I have not spent a lot of time in this series encouraging you to pray, which perhaps has been a mistake. Uh, It is a series on the Lord's Prayer. I made some assumptions that uh, the fact that Christ taught us to pray, uh, the fact that Christ prayed, uh, the fact that the disciples who spent time with Christ. When they look on and get a chance to ask uh, for his coaching, they're not asking to be taught how to lead. They're not asking to be taught how to preach or how to heal or how to do any of those things. They say, teach us how to pray. I'm sort of assuming that you understand the need to pray. And I have talked at various times about the 10 plus 10 uh, sort of benchmark that, that I think entry-level requirement, baseline, right? Uh, Christianity 101, just in an effort not to go backwards, that, that the, that the entry-level requirement is that you spend 10 minutes a day reading the Bible and 10 minutes a day in prayer. So I, I've made some of those points, and I've encouraged you to pray the Lord's Prayer. I want to encourage you to take your prayer life around the Lord's prayer to the next level and and to use the Lord's prayer as as both a prayer to pray and as a as a model for how to structure to think about prayer I have uh, the uh, the the writings I have the introduction to a book on the Lord's prayer that was written uh, by uh, Elmer Towns. The introduction was written by a Korean pastor, um, Dr. Yonggi Cho, who some of you may have heard of because he pastors what is reported to be not simply the largest church in the world today, but the largest church, the largest local church in the history of the Christian faith. And uh, uh, Dr. Cho spends hours a day in prayer. Uh, the people at his church, there's a prayer of this prayer center, and um, he reports that many people take their vacation, their two weeks of vacation, and simply go to the prayer center and pray the entire two weeks of their vacation. He writes about prayer, and I'm going to read you the introduction. Uh, so this is Dr. Yongi Chow writing in the introduction to Dr. Towns's book, and he says, "Dr. Towns told me he wanted to be more godly and to have more power in prayer." At that breakfast meeting, he asked me, how would you advise me to be more effective in prayer? I told him, each day I pray the rounds. Like a runner who jogs around and around a racetrack to get physically fit, I pray the rounds several times each day. Dr. Towns knows church history, so he knew what I meant. To pray the rounds daily is to pray the Lord's Prayer several times a day. I believe that when a person sincerely prays the Lord's Prayer each day, that person has covered the basic ways to worship God and the basic ways to grow and protect his or herself in their spiritual life. Like seeds within the fruit, the Lord's Prayer contains every request which a Christian may pray each day. I told Dr. Towns to pray the Lord's Prayer several times at the beginning of each day once is not enough I told him to emphasize a different petition each time he prayed. I've been doing this and I think there's, there's, uh, there's great opportunity here. I would submit to you that in fact you do have a present from God under the tree. It's been there a long time. Some of you have unwrapped it and forgotten about it. Some of you have unwrapped part of it, but not all of it. But it is the words that Christ gave us to pray. And it is a powerful prayer. Not magic. It's not magic. It's, the, the, vain repetition is not what I'm suggesting. But to use this prayer as, as, a, as a motivating factor in your life, as a guide, as a template to guide your prayers to move forward forward. In your relationship with God, would you please stand and join with me as we pray together the prayer Christ taught us to pray Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts